think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 112 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 113th episode. Very unlucky. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I am Aiton Rainville. Ah, you really took your time revealing that information today. <laughs> uh, very secret. Uh, and yeah, so it's been a little bit since we last recorded. Uh, I was actually deciding kind of as busy. to whether or not I just pulled out because of it being un- an unlucky episode altogether. Yeah, so the, the feng shui here is really not good. Horrible. Uh, but yes, horrible, horrible. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's been a little bit since we recorded last. We have just had like a lot of stuff on our various plates, so it's just... That is the way she goes sometimes. Yes, the uh, end session in is the last couple of... busy in parliamentary terms, but imagine that. It is also busy for people who work in Ottawa in and around Parliament. So, Indeed. And uh, in, in some senses, it's a small blessing that, that we waited so long, because the last couple of days have been uh, very drama-rich, I think it's fair to say. Uh, on Parliament Hill. So, Etienne, I, I know you were, you have been longing to tee off on this, so I, I will leave you the, the pleasure of the first swing here. Well, today in particular was when, uh, you know, massive developments came the, down. The proverbial shit hit the fan, as it were. So, to, to recap this situation, we are talking about the Green Party, right? Yes, we are talking okay. about the Green Party. I don't, I don't think that was the order on our agenda. I, I think we were supposed to do the legislative update. Um, but I did not think that that was the characterization of the legislative update. You can do the legislative update after you've had your spiel about the Greens. Sure. Let's let's talk Greens. Um, so, astute listeners will recall, I, I think I made this joke on the podcast and not just uh, a dozen or so times in my personal life. You usually make it everywhere, so <laughs> I, I just, listeners are probably familiar. Um, that... Uh, Anime Paul was the interim leader of the Elizabeth May party, uh, which is proving to be a very, uh, an increasingly prescient observation, as yes. in the last, I, what day was it that uh, Jenica switched sides, or across the like floor? Thursday, maybe, Thursday, of last a, week? A little under a maybe. week ago. Anyways, so Jenica Atwin, one of the three sitting MPs for the Green Party, representing Fred... And it's worth saying the only one... Yes, the only one not on Vancouver Island. Yes, representing Fredericton. Um, so when Jessica was elected in... I Jenica. Be- What's that? The- Jenica. Did I say Jessica? You you did say Jessica, yes. Sorry, Jenica, a fairly unique name. Um, when Jenica was elected, uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous win for the Greens. Um, it was a fairly unique split in that riding. Um, how replicable it would have been, um, who knows, but, you know, she had the incumbency advantage there, or she would have had the incumbency advantage there going into the next election. As a Green, uh, yes. As a Green. So it was going, it was shaping up to be really interesting to see whether or not the Greens would be able to hold on to that. And since the last election, um, in 2019, uh, Elizabeth May is the other, the other factor that sort of swapped out. Elizabeth May resigned her role as leader of the Green Party, took up uh, parliamentary caucus leader. I don't know how quite quite how she titled it um, or styled it. And uh, a le- or a leadership race was held for the Greens, which led, you know, fairly decisively to Annamie Paul, um, a black Jewish woman, winning um, the leadership race. Although Annamie Paul did not have a seat in Parliament. 
Um, she did surprisingly well in a by-election in Toronto Centre, where she had previously ran um, not that long ago, although she didn't win. And uh, against, I would say, conventional wisdom, she decided to run uh, that in the next election, she would again run in Toronto Centre, uh, pushing her luck. Um, conventional wisdom is a very polite way to put that. Yeah, I mean, the foundational problem here was that if you're a leader of a political party and you don't win in the election... You can do one of two things. You can just sort of resign. Well, let's say three things. You can resign and walk away. Um, you can continue to be a leader of a political party not in parliament, um, but that quickly becomes very untenable. Or you can do the thing that other parties have had to do from time to time, which is force someone else to step down and run in that by-election. The Greens, you know, inhaling the fumes of the way Elizabeth May has structured the party and the ethos that she has sort of pumped into it, are a doing politics differently TM party um, that has sort of refused to do some of those more conventional things um, like ask someone politely to resign their seat so that the leader can run, um, like have Elizabeth May hand her seat over to Annamy Paul upon winning the leadership. Um, there's a lot of sort of legacy challenges in the Greens and a lot of it seems to stem with just personal quirks of Elizabeth May's own political philosophies or yeah well so, such as it is yes yeah which has resulted in a in a party that styles itself as anti-political uh, which you know it turns out is bad for doing politics I, yeah so I think it's, it's worth saying that like this sort of like naive anti-politics thing which I think like if you look at her her sort of contention that the solution to the climate crisis is going to be to form an all-party, you know, war cabinet to take on climate. Uh, it's just that a naive anti-politics, like, say what you will about my, my you know, my, my foes in the, in the liberal and, and conservative parties, is like, at least they understand that what they're doing is politics and that it's like, you know, marshalling the support of various interest groups and, and coalitions towards delivering for those groups of people rather than like the fantasy that we're all just going to sit together at a table and figure it out. You know, like that's just not what this is about. It's about the use of power and the greens have this allergy to the concept of power. That is just like the dumbest thing about them. And the thing I have the least respect for them about. <laughs> yeah. Not to invoke the, uh, the crystal bearers, um, but the Greens could benefit from a shot of realism in their political strategy. Um, I mean, look, if you want to be the, like, the, the Wi-Fi bad crystals good party, fine. But just be conscious that, like, you're not going to... I was talking about IR people as the crystal bearers there, not not the... Oh, that's way too inside <laughs> Different Different yeah. types of crystals. <laughs> um, different, different kinds of crystals. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this is to say the Greens structurally have problems the departure or the exit of elizabeth may never happened it is still the greens are still very much a cult of personality around her um that was really obvious in the aftermath of her stepping down she basically immediately started musing about becoming a leader again her husband <laughs> that was uh, really good a hops farmer in british columbia was appointed or elected, I guess, to the federal board, I, I think it's called, or the federal council yeah. 
of the Greens, although he's just recently stepped down, I think. I don't know if his resignation is effective yeah. immediately. Well, we are we are burying the lead a little bit here. Well, yes, really well, we're, we're talking around the issue, and, and we will get back to the issue. As we, as we are wont to do. Um, but the, the issue being, so, Jenica Atwin, the young rising star of the Green movement, seen by some as the future of the Greens in Canada, a potential leader, but she didn't toss her hat in, um, Pretty much the only person in Canada who didn't run. <laughs> yes, up well, George LaRock, not this time. Um, up and uh, walks away from the Green Party and joins the Liberals. Um, why? Yes. Why does she join the Liberals, LaRock? Uh, because she wanted to get reelected. Oh, sorry, are we doing the reason uh, she's pretending? <laughs> so they had a, a big fight over during the the, the latest Gaza War uh, with Jenica Atwin and Paul Manley coming out and saying. Uh, that they, they stood with Palestinians and that they characterized Israeli policy in the West Bank as apartheid and uh, immediately were, were met by a senior staffer of uh, the leader saying, I will work to defeat these enemies, <laughs> um, which, you know, it's one thing to have. It, it's very tough to be a party leader outside of parliament. And certainly the NDP had its, its share of troubles when Jagmeet Singh was a, a leader without a seat. It really never happened, though, that uh, you had people in Ottawa who were senior staffers, you know, answering to the leader, come out and say, we're going to try to axe sitting caucus members. <laughs> and I can see why that would sort of constitute a bit of a hostile work <laughs> environment for those MPs at that point. Uh, so, you know, as much as, you know, uh, I, I think Atwin's subsequent behavior since leaving the Green Caucus has been not indicative of a strong spine on uh, solidarity with the Palestinian people. Um, which is, which is to say was she a put very... out a release after joining the Liberal Party, basically walking back everything she said. Yes, a completely gormless craven statement. So but it, yes, it led to not to put too far a point on this it. initial perception issue, um, which was that she claimed to have left the Green Party around a principled stance on Israel-Palestine. Um, to go to the party that does not have to one. To go to well, the one, one of the many. Which does <laughs> not represent the position that she was purporting to hold. Um, Edi- yes. Immediately puts out a statement, basically walking back her earlier remarks. And it sort of make, made her look silly. Um, yes. But I would point to the Michael Profoundly. Harris piece today um, that I Ooh. think is starting to flesh this out a little bit. And it's not often, it is not often <laughs> yeah. that I would point to the Michael Harris piece um, for anything except for a joke about Harper. Oh my! Look at the look at the time. Be, He's yeah, still lurking. Be vigilant. <laughs> um, ev- literally, everyone in Ottawa knows that joke. Um, yeah, Harper is lurking, folks. Um, no, but the piece he had today was sort of an inside mini scoop about uh, some of the tensions within the Green Party. Most notably, like that there was a meeting in May in which uh, Jenica was trying really hard to get Anime Paul to notice her or to respond to her and Anime brushed notice her me, off and Paul. won't respond to her emails and things like that. Um, so well, the principled stance might have been sort of the leading headline as soon as it happened. It seems like as we open the layers of the onion or as we uncover the layers of the onion, yeah. um, increasingly it talks to a question of sort of mismanagement, um, yes. staff relationships, organizational dysfunction all of all of the usual you you mentioned the emails thing that was honestly the funniest bit because it was like 
Oh, I assume you didn't see the emails. No, I saw them. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> just like completely cold. Of yeah. like Jenica so asking Anime, like, why haven't you responded to my emails and just getting shut down? Um, which I can see yeah, why. That's really if you're funny. like treating this as a workplace, if you're treating this as a workplace, like it makes a lot more sense. If your boss just isn't picking up the phone, won't talk to you, uh, generally has animus towards you, whatever the case may have been. Um, we're obviously only getting a partial picture of the story through media reports. I'm sure there's more to it than we know. Um, but that sort of begins to make a lot more sense, um, as opposed to the principled stance framing that it initially came out as. Um, yes. But what that means is it creates a broader challenge for the party and a broader challenge for Anime Paul's leadership that we're seeing now is if it's around that type of issue and not the principled stance of a single MP, it raises bigger questions. Um, and that is kind of the way the Green Party is going with their leadership review uh, of Paul in July now, which was yes. sort of the big news today. It was really the knife in the back that calling a leadership review of a brand new leader um, who's been in the like role for months... Yes, and three um, months before a federal election. something that is typically done at all. There is usually nothing to gain from that. No. And it's worth saying, too, that, like, usually the bad story would be MP leaves over principled opposition to leaders' policy. But in this case, it's almost the worst-case scenario because that would at least be, like, understandable rather than, like, yeah, I actually just am a horrific manager and completely alienated this person. <laughs> just yeah. really no upside there no and like i thought in the response by anime paul we saw some like let's say rookie political management where yes. she she started making statements um about why jenica had left the party um and as not the person it is strange to attribute motive to someone that you don't have control over and yes. say oh no that's not why she left she left because of this and then you're in the position to immediately be contradicted and to made made to be looked dumb about it. Yes, as um, a leader, you don't want to be in sparring with people who are like the only people you want to be sparring with as a leader are other leaders, right? You you absolutely do not want to like have your name sort of be billed at the same level as like someone more junior, whether that's a, a minister or you know one of your own MPs. So it, this really, like, drags her down in a way. And actually, there's a great book uh, called Nixon Land that I highly recommend reading about how Richard Nixon has used this technique really effectively. Uh, Apropos of nothing. We Just saying, good book. Um, so the other piece that came out of this, again, just storing, sort of exploring the weird world, the weird political world of Greens, um, is Elizabeth May's response to this entire thing. Yes, who can which, save the Green Party? <laughs> draft. I think I think we know. Draft Elizabeth, strong, stable, green minority of seats, non-party status. Um, no, I mean Elizabeth May went out with her own statements. There was a, a statement issued, sort of jointly by Elizabeth May and Paul Manley, um, and much was made about. Um, Manley's Twitter account dropping green. I don't know if that was a new development or often people go and make assumptions that these things have just happened when maybe he has a neutrally branded Twitter account to begin with. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but in any case, um, they issued a statement saying they weren't planning to leave, 
But then Elizabeth May started, you know, at a time where you would like very tight message control, uh, Elizabeth May started... Wait, are you saying Elizabeth May isn't that good at really tight message control? She'll just kind of say whatever, whenever she likes? She started issuing her own statements about how, you know, at a time like this, she would beg um, Jenica to come back and be nice and not be upset and all of this. Oh, yeah, that's another thing that's worth saying about the the green reaction to someone leaving their caucus is, like, them being, like, absolutely abject and pathetic in, like, trying to, like, woo her back. (laughs) <laughs> really just very embarrassing to watch yeah i honestly i don't know like in putting myself in jenica's position for a minute um you're now a liberal you have just fired your staff um to then go back to the greens after hey some, jk guys some, some sort of appeal <laughs> like this would yeah. just absolutely tank you politically yeah. You would have no chance of getting reelected. Yes. Um, and the only know, thing more pathetic than someone who crosses the floor is someone who crosses the floor twice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know if there's an example in Canadian history of it. I'm sure there um, is. Who knows? But it's probably but like there, a guy who, who probably who always is an example of someone crossing the floor. Like maybe if Bryson had gone to the Conservatives <laughs> instead of to BMO, um, that would have been an example. But no, I don't know that there are any examples because who crosses the floor twice? Well, it probably, it probably was mention, one in like 1892. Not to mention twice within a matter of days or months, as uh, I guess Elizabeth May was hoping. But this is sort of the political naivety that runs deep um, in the Greens and in Elizabeth May's whole anti-politics philosophy. Yes. Um, but... Yeah, alas, uh, I don't think things are looking good for Anime Paul. I think the number, I think when you're a leader, and this this applies to all, um, you know, to leaders everywhere in the world, whatever you're a leader of, um, you want to do a certain amount of coup proofing. Yes. Um, it is generally bad for your leadership to have a sitting or a, uh, a former leader um, still having large amounts of sways uh, sway and questioning your leadership you can look at canadian examples of this um you know how stephen harper was involved in andrew Shear's decline um the relationship and the tension between jason kenny and brian jean um there's other examples you know coup proofing in regimes across the world um however you want to whichever example you want to use but you don't want to become the leader of the green party in name only have everyone on your board be loyalists of the old leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, have the old leader kicking around and heckling you from the sidelines. And, and not giving then, up her seat so you can run. And then you're in the... Yeah, not giving up her seat, all these other things. And then you're in the position where as soon as you trip up, they are ready to swoop back in. Yeah. Um, I guess we should address the... And, and like it's worth saying, like, coup-proofing isn't necessarily the idea that, like, this person is actively going to be you know, engaging in machinations to to take their old job back. Like, you know, she didn't have to leave. She was well-liked in the Green Party. I think she would have been fine. It, it's the, this is why, you you know, for then to take a, a medieval metaphor here, this is why you, you execute the bastard sons, right? It's not so much that you're concerned that they're going to want it. It's that someone could want it on their behalf and use them as a pretext. And then you've got a problem on your hands. And it's much easier and it saves everyone a lot of grief if you just behead them in a tower somewhere. <laughs> Um, 
the one thing I was going to say that we should have to respond to for the, the green support of listeners um, is, and this is was a defense <laughs> when I made this joke before, is that, you know, Elizabeth may resign. Why would she, why would she want the job? Why would she be doing any of this? Um, she voluntarily abdicated the throne. Yes. Uh, why are you guys so mean on her? Why do you think she wants it back? Yeah, would because you, look, Would you like to address that? In the Byzantine Empire, uh, when uh, when a, a leader was deposed, they were usually ritually tonsured and blinded. And the reason for that was that a, a tonsured and blinded person could not come back and seek the throne. As I've said, if you have a, a viable pretender Sorry, for, waiting for in the, the wings... For the audience, what is, what is tonsured? <laughs> not, not for me, for the audience. Oh, yeah. A tonsured is when you, your, your hair is ritually shorn in the manner of a priest or monk. Ah, I see. Of course, the tonsure is. You read Canticle for Leibovitz. They talked about the the tonsure. There, there's words I ignore. Okay. Yeah. At um, any rate, yes, the, the the yes, it's very good to have you know emperors emeritus sort of shipped off to an island somewhere without benefit of their eyes. Yeah. So all that is to say, I think Elizabeth May, who is a very unique personality in politics, is, for the record, uh, I do not think Elizabeth May should be ritually blinded. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. For I do not purposes. endorse ritually blinding Elizabeth May or tonsuring um, her. Good. I'm I'm glad we have that on the record. I, uh, I also. <laughs> this. Uh, so all that is to say, the Green Party is a bit of a mess. I guess we will know in mid July whether or not. Uh, and we Paul's leadership survives. I don't think, I mean, if I were on the board, I would cut my losses, um, which is to say that Anne Paul, even if she stays on, is going to be. You, you don't want the thing. adjective embattled before a leader's name in the lead up yes. to an election. Yes. It is a very good way to lose all of your seats. Like, Anne Paul's going to not win in Toronto Center as embattled leader. Um, so cut your losses, hand it back to Elizabeth and say, peace, I am out of here. It's worth Um, saying too, like comparing the state of the Green Party before this election upcoming and the last one, is that last time there was like a, there was a narrative in the first week of the election of like, are the Greens going to lap the NDP? I think, uh... The NDP is feeling pretty, pretty good right now about the odds of not seeing those headlines again. Um, and I, I think uh, the last thing I would just note is to pour one out for Matt DeCourcy. Um, who Former was the, liberal Fredericton MP, yes. Yeah, I don't know if he was queued up to run again, but these guys are... are well, fa- famously, you watch person. Atlantic Canadian politics like a hawk at end, so I'm surprised <laughs> that you, uh, you weren't aware of that. The incumbent or the uh, the incumbent candidate is always the is the biggest loser in the entire equation when someone crosses the floor because old Matt DeCourcy, who was elected from 2015 to 2019, um, so he had four years under his belt, you know, two years shy of getting that pension, a 39-year-old lawyer. I bet you, I bet you he was eyeing pretty hard a return at a, uh, at Fredericton. And now... Uh, I hope he has other... Bye-bye, honey. Yes. (laughs) As Jenica has absolutely destroyed his plans for this fall. Yes. Um, So tough luck, Matt. Yes, you are our chump of the week. Uh, (laughs) So too bad. Uh, Okay, so I I guess if there's one... You mentioned pensions right then. 
Uh, and I know that's something you've wanted to to address on the show at some point because there's been a lot of chatter about how oh there can't be an election right in the early fall because the pension date for the 2015 class comes due in like October I think so they'll wait yeah. till after the October date. You have I, a counter a counter theory on this which I I think is correct and I, I would like you to uh, to pour it out for our listeners. Okay, so one. First of all, I would note that we received this as a question um, to our mailbag, although this is not the mailbag episode. The next episode will be the mailbag episode. Yes, and um, please send us your questions. Uh, either with, hit via hit DM, the email address. What is it? Or Yes, via DM at shortpantspod or uh, via Gmail uh, to shortpantspod at gmail.com. But let this serve as the teaser for the next episode. Uh, so, I hear way too often... Uh, reference to pensions, um, particularly for like our current state of affairs. So after about six years, MPs are given a pension. It is a great pension. It is certainly something every MP salivates for. Um, you know, young MPs like Matt DeCourcy, who only served um, six years, you know, two years, years back in, in or what did I say, six, four. Yes. Who only served four years, certainly would salivate at the opportunity to get another two years in Parliament. Um, and lock in that lifelong pension. That would be great. Yes. I mean, you know, you could even attribute that to the motives of Jenica and crossing the floor. She will have ish two years. Um, if she gets another majority and then a little bit in a run as liberal, she'll lock in that pension again as a young person. That is great and would Laughing. certainly be uh, a very robust retirement. But the pension calculation is something people like to throw around because it's this niche little trivia nugget. Um, well, and it's also, I think it's a, it's an attempt to try to be cynical, right? Yes. Like, because yes. it plays into the narrative of like, oh, they're just in it for themselves. And like, yes. well, I can certainly see that in the motivation of individual MPs. It's very hard for that to manifest itself uh, across uh, a party. Yes. where it becomes a minor motivation. But even insofar as it is a motivation uh, across parties without doing the math on who has more rookie MPs yeah. that stand to benefit from it, blah, 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 it, blah. And Etienne, before before you launch into it, I just want to, to draw attention to a, a fact in dog racing, which is that in dog racing, uh, you have a little... You're place with your you, you, have a, you have a little rabbit that goes the around the track. of dog? No, it's it's about the little rabbit that you the the little like mechanical rabbit you see go around the track at the beginning, which the dogs chase. And I I will let that visual metaphor set the stage for what you're saying. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how that factors in, but I'll keep I'll keep going. Go ahead. Um, so in in this parliament, there is a very clear dynamic of the opposition is such that the opposition collectively, all of the parties are required to force, uh, and to hoist the government into force an election. The conservative, as we've been saying for a while, the conservatives, the NDP, and the bloc are never going to be aligned on issues, on timing, on all these other things, so as to want to um, create an election or force an election. That leaves who can, you know, by process of deduction, who can force an election? That's the liberals. Who within the liberals... Um, makes that decision, the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office. So, what are their motivations? The Winning. motivations of the Prime Minister's office are nothing in relation to pensions. Trudeau has his pension. He's locked in. Does he care about his backbench MPs getting pensions? Uh, 
no i i mean insofar as he thinks it would be nice for them to be around to vote for his bills for a long time yes but not uh, as a me not as an end in itself correct the the prime minister is not shedding a single tear or losing any sleep over the pension of his backbench mps who at the best of times he might have have trouble naming yes um the reality of it is, if I were in PMO and I were making these decisions, and I look and I say, do we want to call the election before we give everyone a comfortable golden parachute or after we give everyone a comfortable golden parachute? Exactly. The answer would almost certainly be before. This is like, exactly my point about the, the, the dog pace setter rabbit. Is uh, that, do you want people over the summer uh, out knocking? And, and keep in mind, this is, you know, like after a pandemic, everyone's going to kind of want to like, you know do their own thing for a little bit in any cases do you want those folks thinking should i really be going to this like family event or should i be out knocking doors or going to a community barbecue because my pension's on the line you know <laughs> yeah uh, <I laughs> because mean, i'm gonna have to do an election there's an election between me and my pension and i need to go knock on doors rather than like that's ah, fine i've already got the pension locked in because the election won't be before that and no worries i'll just kind of phone it in and then they're gonna lose a bunch of them are gonna lose their seats so you want them uh hungry yes and and like there's no question in my mind that the pension consideration is like it's nowhere it, like even the calculus that we're describing i suspect is not on oh they're not even thinking about it yeah like i don't even think that pmo cares yeah be, yeah because no one really cares except the mps themselves um and everyone else just doesn't just it doesn't matter like yeah. the opposition mps amongst the opposition mp benches there are probably uh, there might be a critical mass who cares but they're not in the equation but they have no say over the timing yeah exactly yeah they you know it's not up to them um so tough but this create this becomes a very uh interesting bit of trivia that people like to throw around is oh well what about pension timing here and there where in my mind pension timing is a highly overrated issue um at the best of times not to mention in this particular context yes so there you go there's the teaser for uh the, the upcoming q a mailbag once again you can dm us your questions uh to our twitter account at shortpantspod or send them by email to shortpantspod at gmail.com um so let me let me just build off a point there very quickly um which is the fall election we're talking about the fall election like it's a, a fait accompli to an extent um it's hard to like what do the liberals have to gain around election timing by calling in the fall i think a large portion of it will depend on polling um presuming now for taking for granted that covid um won't be an issue that it won't be um heavily factored into timing that everything will sort of go back to normal that there isn't a significant fourth wave the biggest question will be the liberals just pulling the plug at a time that is opportune for them um, politically and in terms of polling where they think they can leverage it and capitalize. Yeah. There is not a significant, there is not significant legislation that needs to be passed. We can touch on legislation in a minute that would benefit from another month of parliamentary time, reconvening parliament in September or October for like 30 days or something like that. Um, this government has not been that ambitious in terms of its legislative agenda over the past year, naturally because of COVID. Um, it is, it's struggling um, at the best of times to get things through the House, uh, as we can talk about C-10 in a minute. 
Um, so I think this is a government that is very, very hungry for a majority government and will do almost anything in its power to try and get a majority government, um, as it, I imagine is very tired uh, dealing with minority parliamentary um, affairs. Yes. So let's talk legislation. Yes, you wanted to, to do this very badly, so I will, I will let you well, tee off. Very well, I will let you end, loose at the, the, the mechanical of rabbit. You have to talk about what's what's going on. Go um, chase the mechanical rabbit. Yes, You're not I, had, I had what I thought was a screenshot pulled up on my phone that was going to prompt me for what bills um, the government had prioritized, but it seems to be gone. So let me just try and remember offhand. Well, C C ten is the big one. I, I think yes, that has been so sort of, it, well today there was a significant development there. <laughs> so there have been some developments on C ten since we last spoke about it. C ten was uh, let's say backed up in committee. Conservatives were using dilatory tactics to try and delay it. The government took an unprecedented measure of a time allocation motion um, in committee, which I have never seen before. I understand that it hasn't happened since sort of uh, the Chrétien years or something like that. Um, so the government is pushing and fighting tooth and nail to get C-10 through. Um, they seem to have goofed up on some of the amendments, um, which were declared invalid. Well, it, yeah, well, um, it's basically all of the amendments. Is the... I, I don't know that it was all. Not, it was a significant it's, it's not all. It's not all of them. I did sure. say basically all advisedly. Yes, it was after sure. the first five hours of, of uh, clause by clause. Yeah. So a ton of the amendments were thrown out, which is just uh, hilarious. Undoing the, a month of work. <laughs> speaks. Well, not really though. It speaks to the competence. No, because they of, can they can fix it in report stage. Yes. Yes. Like, you still, can bring back uh, amendments at report stage. Opposition can offer amendments at report stage, etc. Um, but it's certainly slowing down the calendar. Um, but what drives me insane about C10 coverage, and I, I don't know if it's because the media is loath to speculate on this, but outside of articles that specifically talk about the legislative agenda, like these five bills must get passed, no one ever really talks about the likelihood of a bill becoming law. I mean, it is an imperfect art or a imperfect science, I guess is the expression. Is it art or science? One of the two. Um, but no one really does it. And it's sort of been stunning to me that, like, looking at the timeline, when you get to this time of year, it's hard to make any type of case that C10 is likely to pass. Outside of, like, really extraordinary things happening in the Senate, a very united Senate around this issue. Yeah, like, if we're talking about this bill getting royal assent by the time Parliament rises for the summer... Ain't happening, honey. It's just it's not not gonna be a thing that occurs. But the number of people who like exist in Canada um, who are able to project that are within. There's a few in media. Um, there's a few in lobbying firms, and lobbying firms discuss this, um, and they are very sparse in the stakeholder community. Right. Yeah, and it's also worth saying that I think people usually presume runaway in a, in a, a parliamentary timeline. Right, because even if you had a prorogation, they could just bring stuff back at its current stage and go from there. But the fact is, you know, that we're overwhelmingly likely to have an election, which then would, it's a fresh parliament. Like, you can't bring stuff back after an election in the same way you can after a prorogation, which throws all of that out the window. Because, yeah, even if, it, if we were not having an election this fall, different story. Correct. But so the stakeholders that are most concerned with this, the, the cultural industry, um, is going to look at this bill, this, this is a prediction, if you're in the cultural industry, let me know if, if these are your thoughts, um, is going to look at it and say, 
you know, the government fought tooth and nail for us. Ah, we need to reelect the liberals for a majority so that they can yes. pass this bill. Holding their own agenda hostage is a classic, classic where, liberal trick. Where you've actually been done a disservice, right? Mm-hmm. There, there was a version of this bill that could have passed had it been skillfully navigated. Um, I feel like we've been wasn't. saying the entire run of this show that the liberals really suck at legislative floor management. They do, and they, so they've turned this into a wedge, and, and you know, a, a smart liberal can make the case that, you know, they are better served here. Um, as I noted on Twitter today, there is a position that is the liberals do not need to actually pass things so long as the stakeholders are happy. So long mm-hmm. as the Quebec cultural industry feels like the liberals are fighting tooth and nail for them on this bill, whether or not C-10 passes doesn't really matter because they'll have the support, they'll have the public hubbub about it. Um, well, and they know, can hold it, it, it hostage. Will, it will have served as its wedge, and you'll have the hostage for the majority. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the flip side of that is the liberals have an effective maj- majority on this legislation. They have NDP and block support, and they still haven't been able to get this bill passed. They've turned it into a cultural flashpoint that has resulted in your sector um, losing out. I don't know if it'll only be a matter of losing out by a few months. Um, by maybe six months, if this legislation passes again, come a liberal majority, you know, in January or something like that. Um, but for the time being, it they've injected a ton of uncertainty into the machine. And as a stakeholder looking for predictability, this ain't it. Chief, as it were. Um, so I look, I just look at some of these things from the media reporting and the political fights that brew over them and say, like, the whole time I've just been like, but this bill isn't going to pass. But this bill isn't going to pass. <laughs> but this bill isn't going to pass. Yeah, it's, all, it's almost like, like academic. I know, yeah. It's very um, funny. Which, yeah, it just drives me insane. Um, so that's one of the bills. Um, I think there's four or five. Uh, the BIA, uh, the Budget Implementation Act, yeah. obviously going to pass. Obviously going to Well, it has to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Otherwise, no they'll get their election sooner than they thought. So the liberals um, are at midnight sittings. There are two opposition days left. Uh, opposition day motions. Opposition days. Um, one is a block one, which I think is tomorrow as of recording on Tuesday. Um, I don't know who is the other one. Uh, so there is five or six days less left of government time. Um, but midnight sittings help. So the other bills. The... Uh, uh, conversion therapy bill C six C six yes um, is one you know I've I'm of mixed views as to whether or not this one will make it through the Senate um, not so any bill that there is you know a strong will in the Senate not to pass likely won't get through the Senate often sits a day or two later than the House of Commons they don't have a fixed schedule in the same way um, but trust me senators are uh, making their vacation plans and are not spending. Uh, weeks on weeks studying these bills um, you need something near unanimous consent to try and pass bills very rapidly through the senate particularly through all stages mm-hmm. um, so all of the bills the government is talking about prioritizing the house leaders at a press conference on um, they all need to go through the senate so you know it is a interesting test of the independent senate because the independent senate will not be able really to uh, substantively amend these bills without calling back Parliament. Although, normally calling back Parliament would be a big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the with the uh, hybrid, hybrid, hybrid voting does make calling back Parliament 
not remotely as challenging as before. And this is one of the like procedural dilatory tactics that the opposition have had weakened um, by the creation of it. We're typically in a summer, you know, the, usually the only bills that are um, called uh, that they reconvene parliament for are things like back to work legislation. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't seen it for a ton of other things. Um, anyway, that's one. Um, what are the other ones? The low carbon... C12. Yeah, C12, the net zero bill. So net zero. And then there's a, a reconciliation bill. Uh, there are two. There's C15. No, yeah. Well, there's really one that's big. There's, there's, there's a smaller yeah, there's a priority one, but C15 one. is the big one. Yes. C15 is the one that basically uh, implements the UN Declaration in Canadian law. But is that the one that they're... That's the big one that they're trying to get past. And even that the AFN have given the government some heat about not really prioritizing as much as they should. Okay. Uh, that's the one that's a, a very close adaptation of uh, Romeo Saganesh's Bill C-272 from the last parliament. That one is not... Not the one I thought it was. Uh, but I will I will take your word and I will let listeners take your word on it. Um, very good but that's the one that the government expressed interest were you thinking in. were you thinking of the the national day of reconciliation one? yes for some reason okay. i thought it was that one but i'd have to check my notes no c15 is the big one and that's the one that's like they, they really want it passed uh c7 i think is that one there's also a smaller one that removes uh or that adds references to uh, indigenous peoples into the citizenship of i suspect it's not that one no, uh, but the National Day of Reconciliation is, is probably, yeah, that's another one. I forget the number on that one. But it like, is ultimately not that important. You're, you're looking for it? I'm, I'm deferring to my notes. <laughs> so the to-do list is the budget bill, C-10, C-12, and C-6. So actually, C6. only I, yeah, that I think sounds right now, that they only identified four priorities and the other ones fell yeah. off. Yeah. Um, for priorities in the House. I think it's because the National Day one is in the Senate, but I'd have to... I'd have to yeah, I think it is, because that that was kind of a low-stakes one to pass. Uh, but C-15 is a, is a bigger deal. And certainly that's one I think they would love to be able to hold hostage for a federal election. Yeah, which, it should be noted, was held hostage the last go-round. Uh, that one died in the Senate last time, but yes, it essentially Under very they, they, similar yes, circumstances. They, they passed it so that it would not have time to get through a, a rocky ride in the Senate. Yes, Correct. I think that that's fair to say. Uh, so you know what is what is old is new again. Yes, the the, the football will forever be yanked uh, uh, away from Charlie. So Dan. let's leave the legislative update there. Um, all of that is to say, only a few bills stand a chance of passing. A lot of legislation will be left to die. There were strange bills like uh, single sport betting, um, a one-off provincial funding bill. Um, I don't even that, know yeah, what the, uh, the Nova Scotia Newfoundland one. I, I sat I, through the technical briefing on that one, and I didn't even really know what it was about after that. So. The privacy um, bill. The privacy one is a real sad casualty, but even that one, I think like the privacy advocates were getting really, really mad about how it sucked. <laughs> Dan yeah, so, uh, Daniel Terrier had been teed up against I, it. Yes, so. I think they're very happy to just let that one die. Um, so, what else is on the docket? Uh, well, I, the long-delayed analysis of the Morneau report, and uh, to a lesser extent, the Trudeau report. So we've had a few um, reports reports for, collectively yes. from the privacy and the conflict of interest. Oh yeah, that's not even touching. Yeah, not even touching the the privacy commissioner's RCMP thing, which we will leave for a future episode because it is just really excellent reading. 
Uh, yeah, the but co- not commissioners today. collectively have been busy. Um, yes. But being that this is short pants pod. Um, and that we cut our teeth around ethics issues. This is really the OG issue for us, yes. <laughs> it is always fun to cover. I do want to do the Privacy Commissioner run because it is hilarious, but we'll do it another day. Sure. So okay. take me through the Morneau Report. Sure. So the Morneau Report, and as everyone will certainly recall, Bill Morneau was dinged uh, by the Ethics Commissioner, or I shouldn't say dinged, I should say flagged for investigation uh, due to his role in uh, granting the... Much the embattled, shall we say, uh, Canada Summer Student Canada Student Service Grant? Yeah, Canada Student Service Grant, CSSG, to we, uh, to administer. Um, because he, a variety of factors stemming from his closeness to the organization. So uh, we'll start with sort of laying out the relevant portions of the law here. So here are the ones you're going to have to know. So Section 6.1 of the Conflict of Interest Act relates it's a rule relating to uh, decision making and here it is no public office holder shall make a decision or participate in making a decision related to the exercise of an official power duty or function if the public office holder knows or reasonably should know that in the making of the decision he or she would be in a conflict of interest so that one is kind of it's almost like a general duty to avoid you know and it's kind of like you should have known better kind of thing that they can ding you with even if you haven't done anything more directly objectionable or specific i should say uh so section seven is the next one that you'll have to know which relates to preferential treatment no public office holder shall in the exercise of an official power duty or function you're going to hear that a lot give preferential treatment to a person or organization based on the identity of the person or organization that represents the first mentioned person or organization so that basically means giving preferential treatment because of who is representing um some stakeholder or interest group uh, so the classic one that is referred to in the report is uh, Christian Paradis, who was a, a Harper minister uh, granting something to someone because their lobbyist was former conservative MP Raheem Jaffer, and he wanted to do something nice for a former caucus colleague. So just to give you an example of what would be a preferential treatment thing. Our, our Raheem, a, a very nice yes. throwback. Section 21 uh, is the last one. Duty to recuse. A public office holder shall recuse himself or herself from any discussion to decision debate or vote in, on any matter in respect of which he or she would be in a conflict of interest so the commissioner originally focused on the 6-1 which is the decision making and the 21 the duty to recuse parts of it and then uh when uh bill morneau showed up as ill-fated uh finance committee meeting and said that he had come out uh, cu- gone on trips with we and had forgotten to pay them back for some of it <laughs> uh he added section 11 1 and uh section 12 which relate to gifts and travel but eventually discontinued his investigation along those lines but added section 7 the preferential treatment one so the real nut of this decision is actually not about the statutory stuff but about the definition of friends which um traditionally and i I will actually just let dion speak for himself here um this office has traditionally favored a narrow interpretation of the term friend to include only the public office holders closest personal friends and we've joked before about the turkey dinner christmas dinner thing colleagues associates or members of a broad social circle were generally excluded from its application I believe it is, and here's the Sheriff Dion riding into town, I believe it is necessary to broaden the scope of the term to capture relationships where personal and professional interactions become intertwined to such an extent that it becomes difficult to draw the line between the two. In such cases, the public office holder's judgment in the exercise of their official powers and duties can reasonably be impaired. 
So that is actually a very significant broadening. And I, I think of a piece with some Dion uh, jurisprudence thus far also kind of fuzzes things because he uh, it's difficult to know I think in many cases whether he would consider you to be a friend of a person that he's you know looking at a case about and we'll, we'll get some more into that but in terms of the, the sort of flow of logic of the decision he found that uh, Craig Kilberger was a friend of Bill Morneau and that this friendship created a potential conflict accordingly and thus that he should have recused himself from decisions relating to furthering their private interests. Uh, and that led to his finding that he had violated um, Section 6.1, Section 7, and Section 21 for failing to recuse himself, for advancing it, uh, and for taking the meetings uh, with we. So I do want to say before going deeper into kind of the analysis of the friend stuff, which I think is kind of the, the interesting moving parts, is it kind of bears out the original critique or scandal if you will about what was the problem here was which is that the the architecture of the program made we the only viable option and this was due to favoritism um and i'll quote from from dion again i found no evidence that mr morneau was directly involved in the sdc's decision one of his staffers and I, i'm doing that parenthetically asked we to expand its social entrepreneurship proposal and worked and they forwarded the reworked summer youth proposal to the Prime Minister's office in the Department of Finance without reviewing, analyzing, or sharing it with Mr. Morneau. He also continued to promote Wee's original social entrepreneurship proposal. With the revamped proposal available, ESDC officials, facing a tight implementation time frame, had no alternative but to reach out to Wee. So I think in some sense that, that sort of vindicates the original critique of what the whole problem here was. Uh, there's some really funny stuff about how he became aware of uh, the, the large outstanding uh, gift that he sort of had on the books from uh, from these guys, which is, uh, yeah, I, I I would have read it, but we are we are running a bit shorter on time than, than I had figured well, for, he so says, I'll, I'll skip it. I'll, I'll read it. He says, minutes it. prior to his appearance, before yeah, the House of Commons, so minutes prior to publicly announcing it... Uh, Please pick up. Please pick up. <laughs> he wrote to advise me of a material fact that had come to his attention since receiving my letter. Upon reviewing his financial records, yeah. Oh, so it's he wrote. It's not even called. So he like he wrote, hit yeah. send, send on him an email. email as he was walking into the community. Hey, Mario, just so you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then he says, Mr. Morneau explained that his family travel arrangements are handled by personnel employed to manage such affairs. The rich love- do not live like you and me, folks. Um, one actually interesting thing here, too, is um, the, about parliamentary privilege. Uh, the office received over 40,000 pages of documents from Mr. Morneau, Mr. Trudeau, and 13 witnesses, which included a copy of the documentation that all witnesses had submitted to the Finance Committee. Because all parliamentary proceedings are protected by parliamentary privilege, I was unable to use witness testimony before committee as a source of information, despite my formal request to the Finance Committee to allow me to do so. Accordingly, I had to interview certain witnesses who had previously appeared before the Finance Committee in order to obtain their testimony anew, which is kind of interesting, because uh, I think there's often been uh, sort of wondering about how far the um, the immunities of testifying before a committee go. Uh, so getting to the nut of it, which is, you know, are these guys friends, right? That, that's really what this came down to, because otherwise he didn't do anything inappropriate. So Morneau sort of relates what uh the, the history of their relationship he says that they first became acquainted uh after he was elected as a member of parliament since uh we is based in toronto center um mark and craig kielberger said that they first met them 
um, Morneau and his wife in 2016. Uh, in April 2017, and I'll be reading from Dion and interspersed with my own commentary here, Mr. Craig Kielberger wrote to Mr. Morneau to share news that he and his spouse expect a baby. In his email, Mr. Kielberger wrote that Mr. Morneau was among the first to know the news and expressed his gratitude for the many wonderful friends and family to impart parenting advice. Mr. Morneau did not recall specifically whether he or his spouse Mr. Kilger a gift to celebrate the arrival of his child. However, Mr. Morneau did that his practice was to give a small congratulatory gift, as he had routinely done with staff, team members, constituents, and associates at his personal cost. Skipping on a bit, later that month, Mr. Kielberger emailed Miss McCain, which he was uh, Mr. Morneau's wife, to acknowledge having seen them over the weekend. Uh, in his email, Mr. Kielberger complimented her daughter's speech at We Day Montreal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, extended the same invitation to a grand opening in May 2017 to uh, to Mr. Morneau. Mr. Kilberger thanked Mr. Morneau for his years of incredible championing and support. Then uh, Morneau hosted Kielberger and his wife uh, and family in 2018 and 2019, including for a Sunday brunch. Mr. Kielberger wrote that this was a thank you brunch. Um, Mr. Kielberger, this is really funny. Mr. Kielberger wrote that he and his spouse attended in their professional capacity. Uh... And then Craig and Mark Kielberg say later, they never socialize with Mr. Morneau or Miss McCain outside of their professional capacities and do not consider either of them friends. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, this is actually mildly objectionable here as well, is that Morneau's office helped drum up provincial, provincial funding in Ontario for WE in December 2017, so while the Wynn government was still in. In three separate emails in December 2017 to various chiefs of staff to ministers within the government of Ontario, a member of Mr. Morneau's ministerial staff offered introductions for Mr. Craig Kielberger by indicating that he was a dear friend of the office, that we was a great local partner, and asked that the provincial counterparts make time to meet with Mr. Kielberger and other representatives of the organization for them to be able to discuss a proposal for provincial funding. When Mr. Morneau's office was notified by the provincial counterparts that funding had been approved, Mr. Morneau called Mr. Kielberger to personally convey the news. So that sort of takes us to the friends analysis here, because that's sort of the history of their relationship. And honestly, reading this, like, I, I do not get the sense that these guys are, like, actually close personal friends. So, Etienne, would you sort of concur with that? Well, to the extent that I'm not sure what a friend of Bill Morneau's would that's look like. That's kind of precisely um, the point, yes. Um, is that I, and I'll, I'll sort of read what Dion says about this, but I, I think ultimately, like, the point of this law is to some extent to prevent stuff like this, which is an arch schmoozer, arch schmoozing. And no, but that's really what it is, right? Is that like, the, like many people in this sort of world, like, especially in the sort of like nonprofit industrial complex, like they really do like the relationships are everything, right? And they have to, to con- you know, give off a lot of like personal warmth and, and sort of make these personal connections with, with people. And it goes down, you know, to some extent should go without saying wealthy people who are in a position to give them lots of money and powerful people who are also in a position to give them lots of money. And, and to some extent, more importantly, like open doors for them uh, in, in a prestige sense. So like I, and that, so it's tough because like, I genuinely do not think that Bill Morneau is, is a, friend as we as as you or i would conventionally understand it but i do see why uh dion is sort of construing it in the way he is because otherwise it's like this is a business model that i think people should find objectionable you know and i i think that there is a scope in in what the legislative intent here was to cover 
So I'll, I'll read what Dion says, and he sort of addresses the, the previous jurisprudence on this. Commissioner Dawson noted that the term friend is not defined in the act, something we have also noted. She added that the word could be applied to a range of relationships from the closest of lifelong companions to neighbors, colleagues, acquaintances, or business associates that one sees only occasionally and where there is little emotional attachment. In her view, the rules against furthering the private interest of a friend was intended to apply to individuals who have a close bond of friendship, a feeling of affection, or a special kinship. This suggests that the circle of friends captured by the act includes those with whom the relationship is close enough to reasonably call into question the judgment of a public office holder's decision-making. In this case, both individuals belong to the same social circle and were professional acquaintances. However, they both said that they did not solicit each other's company and their families did not socialize together. This, oh yeah, the, sorry, this is a, referring to a previous uh, finding. Uh, so this is just what Dawson said. Uh, how, despite Mr. Watson's frequent references to this other guy as his friend or pal, Dawson found these to be statements that likely resulted from a habit of Mr. Watson claiming friendship with a broad range of people with whom he had no particularly close bond, which is sort of what I'm describing. Um, so then Dion says, while the close bond descriptor outlined in the Watson report is helpful, an assessment of friendship should also be measured against more objective indicators. In my determination of whether Mr. Morneau and Mr. Kielberger are friends, defined within the meaning of the act, I examined, among other factors, the duration and motive for the relationship, the nature, frequency, and exclusivity of interactions, the sharing of meals and gifts in a personal setting, and mutual displays of trust, respect, affection, or admiration. Uh, and then he sort of runs through some of the stuff I've already described, you know, them calling each other friends in emails, having them over for brunch, relating the personal news of the, you know, the birth of his child, inquiring about family members, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then he, he's... He says, all these indicators point towards the friendship. And then he, he goes to, turns over to Kielberger and says, Mr. Kielberger's assertion that he does not consider Mr. Morneau or Miss McCain to be his friend stands in stark contrast to the numerous exchanges between him and members of Mr. Morneau's family. To an objective reader, these communications are more akin to messages between friends than ones between a constituent and their member of parliament. I believe Mr. Kielberger was sincere in his appreciation for the Morneau family's support and genuine displays of respect and affection at that time. I also believe that through these numerous interactions, Mr. Morneau and his family were made to feel as though they had become personal friends with Mr. Kielberger. And I'm sure that's true. I am sure that Mr. Morneau and his family were made to feel as though they had become Mr. Friends with Mr. Kielberger, because to some extent, that is the business model, right? Like, of, of the whole complex of, of how these organizations work. Uh, but I, I think it's also worth saying that, like, I actually do believe Kielberger that he does not consider Mr. Morneau or Miss McCain to be his friends. Um, and then, and this is kind of the insidious part, and this is why this is effective. Furthermore, this relationship appeared to be common knowledge among ministerial staff in Mr. Morneau's office, since they viewed Mr. Kielberger as being important to Bill and noting that he has been really good to us. Uh, so that sort of stretches, right? Is that like your profession of, of friendship in sort of pursuit of organizational goals sort of spills over because there is a sort of working towards the leader in ministerial offices where if people know that you are a stakeholder that is visibly friendly to the minister that will cause things to move faster for you within the minister's office so that's kind of the nut of it and then so so two two things for me um, one, and I think many people know this, but I think it's worth reiterating, is that the Kilbergers are Toronto-based, and Morneau being the, or was the MP for Toronto yeah. Centre, made him his constituent. Yes. 
And in a minister's office, dealing with your constituents is always the trickiest yes. because that is where your political interests are most. Yes, and you cannot give them preferential treatment um, because you are you are acting as an officer of the crown in a distinct capacity from operating as an MP and a member of the legislature. Yes, but you will feel very yes. conflicted when your constituents come to you asking for absolutely yes, being at the you know the local community center missed the deadline to apply to this thing can you maybe can you do something yes, about and that when, and, and it's like well if you're an mp you'd write a letter to yeah. the minister but as the yeah, minister you can't just do that you, you and that's the thing is Dion says in his finding on the preferential treatment part and just to you know i think i said this already but he found <laughs> that he violated each of those sections six one seven and twenty one Regarding seven, he says, I'm of the view Mr. Morneau afforded we preferential treatment by permitting members of his ministerial staff to disproportionately assist a constituent. So. So, follow-up question. Would you say that Zion friend-zoned Mark Kilberg? Really Craig, mostly. But yes. Or, sure. You, you've ruined that punchline. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, so my takeaway from this, though, like... Is as someone who works um, to an extent in the industrial complex that you're talking about, one of the challenges in this space has always been the definition yeah. of friend. Um, within Ottawa, Ottawa is a very small community, uh, you know, of a million, but the political community is even smaller. Um, the political and the lobbying community is smaller yet. Um, and asking people about family and some of the things that Dion characterizes are not uncommon. In, no, and, and uh, yeah, know, reasonably formal relationships. And I would say, like in the nonprofit sort of world, especially where you are, you know, big dollar charity uh, that makes a big whose business model fundamentally is its visibility. Uh, like this stuff is incredibly valuable, right? And like having warm personal relationships with decision makers is kind of part of the mystique and the point. So, yes. So I guess I guess my question, taking this away, is. I don't, I am not clear on where the line Yeah, and I think, yeah, basically, like basically. I said, I think I think this is kind of... The line that was set by Dawson was, would you invite this person to turkey yeah. dinner, basically? Um, or a holiday dinner? And you could always, you know, there was gray zone in that of, if your family has a tradition of you know, inviting people who don't have other things going on for turkey dinner. But at least dinner, conceptually, um, it's a good, like... You can imagine a situation of like, okay, yes, I know where or, that person... Or to your yeah. wedding or th or things yeah. along those lines. Like, you would very clearly cross the threshold um, for me. But other people, um, you know, if you've known them and worked around them on the Hill for several years, um, if you engage with them multiple times a year, uh, where where is that line, I think, becomes... Uh, a very interesting yes. question because it is much better to be proactive about these things and to ensure you do not cross that line. And I'm not sure what, if I was a lawyer advising my client on this, I'm not sure the guidance would be like, when you go into the meeting, do not ask him about <laughs> um, his or, his or yeah. her family or do not ask them about their family and never refer to this person as your friend in an so email. Here and like... Is that enough? Is that enough insulation to not have tripped this line? Do not go to brunch on Sundays. You can only do working brunches Monday I think it's important Friday. to say that this is a conflict of interest act and not a lobbying act issue, right? So in, in a sense, like, this imposes, you're saying, you know, the legal advice uh, on meetings. 
This well, doesn't. It is, but it isn't because the lobbying code of conduct, not that they were registered yes. as lobbyists. <laughs> yeah, a separate um, issue, which I'm sure we will have not putting occasion to comment on later. Not uh, putting others in conflict. Yes, but the, lob- the lobbyist code of conduct also doesn't like carry statutory penalties. But at any rate, I see your point. But like, uh, I see your point. But like, yes, this is about least. imposing obligations on public office holders, right? And like, to some extent, like, I, I don't really think it's inappropriate for public office holders to be thinking like is it appropriate for me to be making this decision whatever it is should i be recusing myself like i think having ethical considerations more at top of mind for people is like fine uh for instance like i I think we've talked about the taze report on this podcast before uh which basically was a ruling by the previous commissioner yes by dawson that that basically made it, it it created an impossible standard in the law where a meeting was considered direct and significant, uh, or sig- the significance of a meeting for the purposes of the act was in the eyes of the person you met with and not you, right? And that places an impossible onus because you simply cannot know what is considered significant to other people because you are not them. In this case, that's not what what the standard is here. It is still like internal to you, like it is still something you could reasonably be expected to comply with. And, like, I do think this is kind of Sheriff Dion uh, waving his tin star around, as he is sometimes wont to do. Uh, not that I, I dislike that about him. I, I think it's 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 funny and fine. Um, <laughs> I've, I've had my historical <laughs> No, and, and certainly, this, like, but... I, I, when you've had specific objections in the past, I, I think they are they are made, they are, they're well made, and, and I agree with them broadly. But I, I do find his general uh, sheriff routine to be to be quite sympathetic, and I don't mind it. But yeah, it's an interesting thing, and I think it'll certainly change how ministers and uh, their staff go about these relationships, and, and maybe think a little harder. And it, I, I personally like. I think it would be good if the culture of of trying to get things out of government did not involve as much of trying to be people's personal friends or project an image of trying to be people's personal friends, and it was just more, you know, uh, about the issues but of course that that is perhaps my elizabeth may talking so who knows <laughs> yes it is you, you channel it well yeah i mean obviously agreed um that we would all hope that things are done on the merits but humans being fundamental yes. human creatures um are prone to not doing know, that <laughs> relationships niceties yes. all all of those things uh being considered i mean one, one of the common complaints about the move to work from home over the last year, yes, um, has been the absence of the personal niceties and the side conversations and the banter. Yeah, it's all brains and jars shooting and each that, other's emails at the speed of light. Yes, and much superior. Very much more trans, transactional yes. in nature, um, which I guess from your view would perhaps be if, a future ever, everyone a on a separate mountaintop monastery communicating via Falcon. <laughs> yes, um, but unfortunately, that is not Sadly. how it goes, and we will see if September holds. Well, not only an election, but I guess a return to business as normal in terms of in-person meetings and stuff like we that. We shall see. Indeed, there there is one a return to those super quick loose end I want to wrap up, which is the equally long Trudeau report. But I will spend almost no time on it. Um, suffice to say that he did not find uh, the same breaches as he did with Mr. Morneau. Uh, and he found no evidence of friendship with the Kielbergers. Uh, and this is kind of the, the interesting part, is he could not conclude that his relative's relationship with Wee, because famously they, um, his mother and his brother... Uh, fall outside the scope of the yeah, act. Yeah, well, yes. So they fall outside the scope of the act, and 
even an apparent conflict, which I think like in a sort of conventional conflict of interest situation, yeah, like in a you know the corporate world or elsewhere, you would see issues. It is not defined in the scope of the law here, so there is no prohibition on apparent conflicts, even though in normal sort of ethical proceedings, an apparent conflict is basically treated as equivalent to a conflict because th- the whole point is perception. So that is an yeah. interesting wrinkle. Uh, wrinkle noted. Do you want to reiterate the mailbag and how we can be reached for the sure, next episode? Sure, yeah, for the third time this episode. If uh, you would like to leave us a question for the mailbag, and I encourage you to do so. We had a lot of fun with the last one, and I think we'll, we'll want to be doing these every six months or so, as long as there, there's kind of interest. Uh, you can send us an email uh, to shortpantspod at gmail.com or send it to us via Twitter DM to our Twitter account at shortpantspod. And you, what's your uh, what's your personal phone number? Six one three. I will remind me six one three two. Yeah, I guess that'll that'll do it for us this this uh, this weekend. We will we've already got some stuff we left on the, the cutting room floor here that we would like. Well, not so much cutting room floor because that would imply I do any editing of the show, which I don't. Uh, but at least the <laughs> topics for another time uh, bag, which we will certainly get to. So thank you once again for listening. Uh, and until next time, bye-bye.